0: And welcome back to the LawCast This time we're going back to cover Teams of five strive to survive It's Survivor Series 1988 Kyush, how much are we going to ruin people's childhood memories this week? Boy, it, I would have to imagine that most of our audience is of a right, about the right age that they maybe remember this Or... Are prop or are maybe young enough that this is their first experience. Either way, we're going to make this show absolute garbage in your mind. Because God did it suck from start to finish. I just... Gotta be honest. I feel like survive, like the old school Survivor Series with the elimination matches, to me, is entirely something that... The fond memory of it is exclusively nostalgia. It's not a good concept. The one thing that all Survivor Series always had going for it is that it's a kind of match that you literally never see any other time on WWE's calendar. Like, they would never do elimination matches of any sort at all. I remember, like, in, like, the thousands when they finally started doing, like, tag team elimination matches and stuff, that it seemed, like, novel. Because they literally—that it that was for Survivor Series never any other time. So you could get away with the fact that these matches are terrible most of the time. <laughs> And meanwhile, on the other channel, when they go to do a five on five match, it's war games, which is an apocalyptic death match where people are going to bleed to death. And here it's just let's put together a bunch of random teams that make no sense. And they also they never really seem to bother with the obvious story you can tell where the captains have to assemble their teams. Yes. The, the very – and all of Survivor Series' is history, they've maybe done that story actually like five times. And every single and time it was a massive success. Yeah. But every other year they just kind of announce, like, oh, here are the teams. These guys are teaming up. And, like, the, that's the problem. There's no stakes to Survivor Series. Nope. When they actually do layer stakes under Survivor Series, it's generally a really big success. Uh, you remember the yeah. NXT one? That was a really big success. You remember the the Raw versus SmackDown ones? Those were always yep. very interesting. C was the authority, where the authority got fired if they lost. The only Survivor Series that you and I ever talk about is that that yep. one match, that one beautiful match. But also like the Ma- Team Michaels one, where Bischoff was going to get fired, or whichever one that was. Like yep. that one's really good Austin too. Austin had to retire if he lost, if his team lost. Yeah. Elimination matches are not an interesting stipulation in and of themselves. They are not ladder matches. They're not Hell in a Cell. They're not war games. It's just a way to lose the match. It's not interesting in and of itself. It needs something. And none of these matches on this show feel like there's any reason that the babyfaces need to win them. <laughs> so remember in 1990 when they did the... I don't remember. I think they called it like the ultimate survivor match or the grand finale match, where they put all the winners from the previous yes. matches in a match against each other. Well, that was kind of cool, but again, it suffered from the problem of the winners didn't get anything. Yes, that's the thing. Is like it's got to be like the winner gets a shot at the title. This was a similar problem in that WCW tournament they did for, like, the man of the 90s that Sting won. But he didn't actually get shit for winning that. He should have gotten the number one contendership. That's all you got to do. Number one contendership. Yeah. I mean, you could make this. I think if you put all the survivors into a battle royal at the end of the night and the winner either got the number 30 spot in the Royal Rumble or got to face the champion at the Royal Rumble... That would, to me, like, justify the existence of this show with this stipulation. That's the interesting thing, though, is I think maybe they would think that that would take away from the Royal Rumble. They haven't invented that stipulation yet, so that doesn't actually apply to this. But, like, obviously the Royal Rumble is the version of that. This one's only two months before it. So I get that if they're like, oh, we don't really need to do that. But I just always feel like... Of the major pay-per-views, all of them should connect to another major pay-per-view. I feel like King it of the Rings should connect to SummerSlam. Storytelling. Yeah, Survivor Series connects to the Rumble. Rumble connects to WrestleMania. That's just how it should work. And, and then, then they restart. WrestleMania is the blow-off, yeah. Yeah, it just makes sense, right? Be good. That would be good storytelling. The problem is that if you do something months in advance, you always have to stick to it. And like, God knows that they don't like that. <laughs> And the other, couldn't they have just ripped off war games at some point here? It's funny. Vince must have thought that war games are just some bloody bullshit, which of course it was. Yeah. Like so, like, of course he's not going to do that. But the other problem is, is like, let's say you're gonna do a war games match here. So like literally you could have made the main event of this pay-per-view a war games match. The only problem is, is that you don't have a heel team worth shit. The Red Rooster is in the main event of this show. I mean, if you were going to throw every, it would be mostly what you have. I mean, DiBiase, Hogan, DiBiase, Andre, Twin Towers, and I don't know who the fifth guy would be. But you could have made this stronger. But I think they, they wanted to spin Andre off away from Hogan and Savage into that program with Jake. So they ended up putting Andre in the Jake match instead. I think putting King Haku in it was actually a great idea because he shines way more than anybody else in the main event. Um, That's great. Maybe you could throw perfect in 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 there. there. Rude. I don't know. Whatever. Like, you could have made it work, but it should have felt like by the time you get to this main event, you've seen this exact match for, like, three fucking hours, and it's not special anymore because there's nothing different about it. Yeah. That's a very fair point, too, that over the course of the night, these matches do just start to get old. It's that TNA lockdown effect, right? Like, you can put on a bunch of different kinds of cage matches, but at the end of that show, you've watched seven fucking cage matches. Like, it's too much. So, we're coming off SummerSlam, where Hogan and Savage beat Ted DiBiase and Andre the Giant in the main event. That really disposes of them as threats. Logan and Savage. Uh, DiBiase is in the main event here on the heel team, but he's very much an afterthought and Andre moves into a feud with Jake Roberts because he's petrified of snakes. Here's the thing. DiBiase, basically from WrestleMania 4 on isn't a singles threat again basically ever, which no, is crazy, crazy if you think about it. Yeah. Because at one point, he seemed like he was going to be a tippy-top dude, but like he's literally never a threat to anyone from this point oh, on. Oh, yeah. There's a world where they put the title on him at WrestleMania 4 and he holds it until WrestleMania 5. That was, I think, what some folks in the organization wanted, but Vince just wasn't on board with the idea of a heel champion. But yeah, I don't think people understood the degree to which WWE was a babyface territory. Like, there had never been a heel champion for that long and there, what wouldn't wind up actually being one until what? Triple H, The Rock, y- Yokozuna. Yeah, I guess he holds it for yeah. what, like eight months. Yeah, I think it's Yokozuna. King, King of the Ring to WrestleMania. That's that's a real run. But like, the, and he had to be talked into that. He didn't like that idea. Yeah. And if Hogan hadn't walked out and refused to do the match with Bret, I don't think it would have happened. Yeah. Because the way that uh, it was supposed minutes. to be. Yeah, the way it's supposed to be was Hogan holds the belt until he drops it to bread at SummerSlam. So there's, it's still just baby faces all the way down. They ran Madison Square Garden September 29th, drew 13,000 people for Savage defending the title against Andre. I do wonder if they're starting to burn the garden out a little bit here. I think that they probably are. I don't think that they have a ton of like big main events, too, but they're running it a lot. Like, they did not Every often- month. Yeah, they didn't often do that. Like, it was normally like a yearly thing to run the garden, or at most like a couple times. Every month is a lot. They, I mean, they've been running it monthly for a long time at this point, but they're about to go away from it. Starting in 90, I think they only run it, uh, you know, quarterly. They get away from the monthly because it's just not drawing the way it used to, and it's an expensive building to book. Yeah, and like it also kind of exposes you because the second you start not drawing Big in the Garden, like yeah. it really exposes how bad your product is. In October, they repackaged one man game gang as Akeem the African Dream. One of the most bizarre gimmicks in wrestling history. Like they literally talked themselves into putting a character that was just a mockery of Dusty Rhodes. On their TV and pushing him as one of their top stars. Here's the thing. If you want to mock the booker of the other company, because you're so mad at Dusty Rhodes that he was like booking for them the whole time and then you had to fire him. Okay. Whatever. That's stupid, but okay. Whatever. Like that hasn't even happened yet. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. It hasn't even happened yet. So so basically you're just openly mocking a guy, but then to make that guy, somebody you actually want to push and to make it that gimmick the one man gang is one of my favorite gimmicks in wrestling history like what a badass name that is and you got the perfect you got this dude playing it who's six foot six 400 pounds and yeah looks like he could mess up everybody in cook county jail and like one man gang had gone around the horn with hogan before this so like he'd already like done his run so maybe they were just like well we think we can refresh him and get more out of him which is fair But to do this, to be like, hey, you know what? Actually, he's African. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. He thinks he's black. Isn't that funny? Also, take him seriously. He, and the guy, I mean, I can't think of the guy's name, but he hated the gimmick. Of course he did. Yeah, (laughs) I feel like that goes without saying that he thought this was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard of. This is literally a man who's been like a biker badass his entire yeah. fucking career, and now he's coming out from deepest darkest Africa. Imagine they like Vince calls you in his office, and like, "Hey, we're gonna make you a huge racist. You cool with that?" Yeah. No. All because we get our chuckles off at Bruce Pritchard's impersonation of Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> That's the thing. Then make Bruce Pritchard be Akeem, for fuck's sake. Don't make one man gang do it. Eventually, for a brief period, they did put Bruce on commentary in a character named Rio Rogers, who was him doing his Dusty voice. Look, I like Bruce Pritchard's Dusty Rhodes impersonation as much as anybody. Sure. But, like, Wait. what the fuck are you doing? It's not, like, a marketable thing so much of wrestling history I feel like revolves around the fundamental truth that people who run wrestling companies get bored and end up doing very stupid things out of their boredom and also that they don't they're so unaware of anything outside of their immediate bubble right Yeah. you become such it's such an intensive job and you're just eat sleep and drink wrestling all the time that there's just nothing that exists outside of that anymore also to point out, I would speculate most of their audience has no idea who Dusty Rhodes is. Probably not. Not that many people like WCW, NWA didn't have that many people watching it at this time. You know, they were getting, you know, they were getting like two million viewers a week on the superstation or something like that. It's a small chunk of the country that has cable and is choosing to watch WCW on it. And, like, most of Dusty's run was, like, earlier in the 80s. Like, I, I know that he just had his yep. big run with Flair, but if you're not watching, you might be like, oh, yeah, Dusty Rhodes, you mean that guy who wrestled San Martino in the Garden? That's, in 78? That's weird. That's a weird pull." Big chunk of their fan base wasn't alive when that happened. Yes. <sighs> uh, October 16th, they ran the King of the Tournament in Providence, Rhode Island This is one of the pre-TV King of the Ring tournaments that's really never Been acknowledged um, DiBiase beat Savage in the finals To win the tournament I don't know, I would have been Into King of the Ring being on TV In this era, I don't yeah. know if it's Fit for a pay-per-view, but would have been fun for a TV special I also kind of feel like we missed out on like King DiBiase I feel like he could have done something with that uh, He would have rocked that like the, the Million emperor. Dollar King. The Million yeah. Dollar King. Uh, they're back at the Garden on October 24th. They did 12500 for Savage retaining the title over Andre by disqualification and Jake beating Rick Rude in the main event. Um, not a great crowd for that, but again, trying to get people to buy tickets every month is tough. Also, like, they're pretty much running the same matches in the Garden again and again. Like, maybe once you've seen Andre versus Savage, it's not like you think you're going to get a clean pinfall out of that, right? (laughs) Like, you can't really believe uh, that. At some point, you also start losing your credibility that you're actually going to deliver a finish. Exactly. Like, anybody else on top, you'd be like, oh, man, we might get something special there. But if you see Andre on top, you're going to get a fuck job. What's the point? Uh, debuting in late October, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard is the Brain Busters, managed by Bobby Heenan. That's a real shot in the arm for the tag division. I forgot that they were coming in, so when I saw them here in Thank this God. fucking crazy match, I was like, oh shit, it's them. Yeah. When we go through this tag division, when we get to that, guys, I want you to remember, this is probably usually considered to be... Maybe the second or third best tag division in WWE history. And it sucks. <laughs> oh, come on. No, no. There are some really amazing tag teams in there, but the depth yeah. falls away very quickly. It does. I What I love about the Brain Busters and the WWF is they just feel like they're dropped in from another universe. Oh, They yeah. do not fit in this company at all, and that's what makes them great. That in this company of over-the-top, outrageous characters and gimmicks. You just get these two old-school, hard-ass, traditional, professional wrestlers who are going to stretch these boys and teach them a lesson. We'll get to that match, but my favorite thing is that it really is, like, all the baby faces are these small, pretty guys. All the, like, heels are these gigantic muscle men. And then there's these two dudes who look like PE teachers just whomping ass in the middle. (laughs) Art Anderson's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, and yeah. him and Tully made a great combination. Tully, what a little shithead Tully Blanchard is. Just the epitome of the best way to get Heat in that era was to be a heel who all the guys in the crowd thought they could beat up, and that was Tully Blanchard. This is, he's the kind of heel that really didn't exist very much in that day, because everyone was so protective of themselves— he was constantly vulnerable. He constantly seemed like he was about to lose, and then he'd just skive off. Everyone talks he's got about... All, he's got all backing him up. Everyone talks about the chicken shit heel, but even, like, the flares of the day wouldn't, like, you make them look that weak. Tully never looked strong. For once, he's the Dominic Mysterio of his day. Uh, Saturday Night's Main Event was taped on October 25th and aired on October 29th. Lots of political humor and references on this show as it's about a week before the 1988 presidential election. Jesse Ventura opens the show by saying that he thinks Vince went to prep school with that chicken hawk, Dan Quayle. Yep. Oh, boy, Dan Quayle. (laughs) Yeah, forgot he existed. He's still alive. Not even that old, really, because he was, I don't know, 40 years old when he was vice president. Here's something that it would be almost impossible to convince people of today, but, like, whole election cycles around this time were built around Dan Quayle being just gigantically stupid because he misspoke, like, once or twice. He misspelled potato. Yeah. Like, but, like, think about the things that go on now. (laughs) It was a more innocent time. Yeah, at that time, it was like, well, both of these candidates are pretty similar, but this guy misspelled potato, so what a fucking idiot. (laughs) And he got roasted in that debate By Lloyd Benson With the you're no Jack Kennedy line It's true Because it was the truth oh, What's some deep political polls Yeah On this Saturday night's main event, Jake beat Rude by DQ, Andre the Giant came out to help Rude, Jake pulled out Damien, this is where we found out Andre was terrified of snakes. Great acting by Andre here as he literally faints in the ring and acts like he's having a heart attack. This is really underrated, but having this be part of Andre's character is such a good idea, because yes. you'd never believe in a million goddamn years that Jake the Snake could beat Andre the Giant. Like, you just wouldn't. Even but, though he's strangely almost as tall as Andre. Right. But adding this to it makes Jake yeah. so much more credible and over. It just, it's so perfect. Whips out that snake and Andre just collapses in tear. That's what she said. Uh, Demolition beat the Heart Foundation to retain the tag titles after a megaphone shot. Basically, the same match they did at SummerSlam, but shorter. I am. This season may be the last time we ever have to talk about Demolition. <laughs> I can't imagine when it would even ever come up in another season for as long as we continue this podcast. Hogan beat King Haku. Hogan had Elizabeth in his corner. No Randy Savage on this show. The champion is an afterthought. Yeah, that's weird, right? It is. He can't even be there in his corner. Like, it's odd. Dino Bravo beat Ken Patera. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> might literally be the worst possible match You could put together in this era Or any era I just want to imagine Vince McMahon writing that on a booking or You know what, at uh, this point it was Pat So like Pat handing it to Vince And Vince being like, Jesus Christ Pat, uh, really? And the big boss man beat Jim Powers In a squash match Sure Our main event here at Survivor Series Is going to be Hogan and Savage Teaming with Coco Beware Hercules and Hillbilly Jim against Ted DiBiase, the big boss man, Akeem, Haku, and the red rooster. Wow. Wow. So, so, okay. It let's imagine for a second that they had done some sort of program where they were like putting together these teams. You can understand how the heel team came together. DiBiase has guys t- guys. Yeah. Heenan has his guys that he sells to DiBiase because he's all about money. King Aku was disputing with Hogan. Sure, the Red Rooster is this hot new heel that's coming in. So yeah. Heenan and DiBiase get him involved. I get it, right? How do these babyface team get assembled, Steve? Christ. So you have a dancing bird man, a Greek god, and a farmer. Like. They had established at this point that Hillbilly Jim and Hogan are friends, right? That had yeah. already happened. Yeah, Hillbilly Jim has been teaming with Hogan. Uh, they've done that on house shows for years at this point. So that at least kind of makes sense. Although I don't feel like Hillbilly Jim had been involved in things. I, he was always strange. He was always around, and he was protected, and it felt like none of the heels ever got heat on him. But he just never really did anything. He was just there to dance and entertain the kids. right. And then just, there's Coco who's just there also. It, it, but and then there's Hercules. Was Coco working with the red rooster cuz he's the bird man and rooster's a rooster? God, I hope not, but I bet you he was. Yeah. That's probably Coco's the kind of guy when you bring a new heel in, Coco is usually the first guy he works with. The really interesting thing about this is that it does give you that vibe, though, that they were just driving down the street and saw these three jabronis on the side of the road and was like, "Hey, yeah, yeah. you dickheads, get in." We Hercules is working. A pro- Hercules is in a program with De- with DiBiase because DiBiase bought his contract contract from Heenan. Like they're pushing Hercules as a babyface because he just turned, which shows you where like the Not priorities good. are in this company right now. Not good. Uh, They aired a cable special on the USA Network on November 8th, which was election night. That's classic counter-programming, the theory being, you know, most people don't care about the election. You know, the people don't care about the election results are going to be looking for something else to watch. And all of the networks are going to be covering the election. So maybe it will score a decent rating with some wrestling. And I think they did. Um, Also, the election was a snoozer. George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush wipe the floor with Michael Dukakis. That was probably called by 10 p.m. It's also funny, because, like, I can remember... So, I was born in 85. So, the first election I really remember is 92. Yeah. Elections just... I'm not going to say they didn't matter, because, of course, they mattered, but, like, they weren't... It wasn't as life... It wasn't as apocalyptic as it's become today. Now, you, like, cr- clutch your rosary beads and watch the, like, the little bars tick back and forth until the final vote is counted... That didn't really start until like the well, thousands. It was well, it was like the Super Bowl. It was always a blowout. Uh, I mean, just like uh, how many close elections have we had in recent years? At that point, it's like this was a blowout. Both the Reagan elections were blowouts. Ford and Carter was actually close. Nixon destroyed what's his name in seventy two. Sixty eight yeah. was a nail biter too, but sixty four had been a blowout. So I mean, we've we've had a couple close ones, but it felt like if it, it, this really felt like. The Republicans had a lock on the presidency. The Democrats had a lock on Congress. There's no competition. Yeah, until Clinton comes along and wins as a Democrat, and it's genuinely shocking, there's there's nothing actually interesting going on here. (laughs) So, they had taped this. It was a show they had taped in France back in October that they aired here. I did not have time to watch this one, but like all the episodes of Primetime Wrestling are on the network from the 80s. So, you could look this one up and watch it if you really wanted to. Um, Savage beat Akeem by DQ. Andre beat the Junkyard Dog. And Rockin' Robin beat Sherry Martel to win the women's title. How about that? Yeah, a women's title change. I it's very strange that there was still a women's division in this company at this point. It's funny, because we're going to cover, once we get to the Rumble, there is a women's match going yeah. on. But until those random matches that get thrown on occasionally, you would never know that women exist in they, this company. Really, they had the they had a women's tag match at the Survivor Series last year, because they had the Jumping Bomb Angels in, Right. But... The Jumping Bomb Angels were awesome, but they couldn't afford to. Bu- I mean, they just couldn't afford to book them regularly. It was too expensive to fly them in from Japan, and I'm sure they had to pay a nice rides fee to get them. It's just funny because going on in Japan right now, like the yeah. Joshi's are not just some of the best wrestlers who had ever lived at that point, but like they're so gigantically over that they're completely overshadowing the men's wrestling in Japan. So like. It's very tempting to bring them over and use them in that way, I'm sure. Because, but there's just nobody in the states of your own that you can use that you can have all the time. So I guess I can understand why they don't really push it all the time until they get a lunder blaze. The Dave Meltzer star ratings on those all Japan women's matches would break people's b- if they saw them. Here's the thing, and they're all true. It's not like um, yeah. I am like some of the greatest matches of all time. I know, I'm sure that there are people out there who like flat out don't believe that. And dude, I totally understand if all you've seen is... I mean, coming from you, (laughs) the biggest fan of both women's wrestling and Japanese wrestling. Yeah, it sounds like total bullshit. I totally understand that. But no, like they are, I would say that like early 90s, late 80s, Joshi wrestling is probably the best wrestling that has ever existed in terms of presenting it like as a sport and spectacle. It was crazy. Uh, The biggest stories in wrestling right now are ownership changes. Ted Turner has bought out Jim Crockett promotions, and Jerry fucking jarrett has bought world-class championship wrestling. That should not have been allowed. Someone should have stepped in. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody should have blocked in and stepped in and said that was some kind of, you know— commerce violation like we can't have jerry Jarrett owning a wrestling promotion outside of memphis the world isn't ready for that imagine you're a wrestler working in world class at that oh, time and you're God. like oh man who's buying us maybe the paydays will go jerry. up jerry Jarrett. oh fuck fuck never gonna make a dollar again <laughs> <laughs> oh. all right are you ready for the lightning round. Jesus Christ. I can't even imagine what this is going to be. We're in 1988. What the hell? They lived, starring Roddy Piper, debuted in theaters number one at the box office and received decent reviews. It would go on to make, uh, I believe, about $40 million, which is roughly $100 million today. He's which a wild is thing. more than The Flash has made so far. Oh, shit. You're right. Adjusted for inflation, for inflation, probably cost about 16 bucks to make. Yeah, adjusted for inflation, it probably outdid like fucking Black Adam too. <laughs> the book on They Live was always that it was like this weird cult success that like no one Very actually watched. Very successful movie. Yeah, actually, it was a huge hit. Yeah, I I think people just don't understand. Like box office numbers were different back then. Yeah, like most movies tickets cost two tickets were two, tickets cost two and three dollars back then. It was different. Yeah. Fifty million dollars was what you were aiming for at the time. It's like the equivalent of like two hundred and fifty now. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas now these movies need to make, you know, five hundred million dollars just to make their budget back because Hollywood's gotten drunk. Yeah, I saw the number. So like Raiders oh, of the Lost Ark made three hundred and fifty million at the box office in nineteen eighty one. the budget for this new Indiana Jones movie. How the fuck did they think this was going to be profitable? Agreed. But that in uh, terms of inflation was $1.25 billion. Yeah. yeah, also, Raiders of the Lost Ark, this is wild how different movies used to work. That was in the top 10 in the box office for a year straight. Today, no movie would ever be in theaters for a full year. And the idea that any movie would be in the top 10 for more than a few weeks is in, now you make, I don't know, 70% of your overall gross the opening weekend. Well, also because they pull movies out of theaters after a month. They used to be like, as long as it's selling tickets, we're keeping this shit in. Yeah, it just worked differently. It was a much more of like a build. Movies would sometimes they'd have their biggest box office weekend a month after they'd been in theaters. Once people had actually started to hear about it. You know, people didn't know what movie was coming out. They would wait until their weird friend who saw everything, like told them whether a movie was good or not. But they also had like a whole nother layer of like B theaters. So you'd go to see like the big theater, theater. the big premiere, but the cheap theater would stay in business by showing the movies that people actually wanted to see. So they just keep Star Wars in there for two years straight. The tickets would be like a dollar. Yeah. And then you'd be like, shit, yeah, I want to go see Star Wars five more times. You wouldn't go to the expensive theater to go that you go to the B theater to do that. Yeah, and the theater makes its money on concessions anyway, so it worked there. out just fine for them. The popcorn wasn't any cheaper. Yeah, the popcorn was always the business. That's what everyone lost sight <sighs> yeah. of. Haku was sued for $1.1 by a man who claimed he bit his nose off in a bar fight. A number of wrestlers have confirmed this is true. Here's the fantastic part. Anun... Uh, everyone denied it at the time, and then after the statute of limitations came up, yeah. everyone immediately came out and were like, "I was there. I watched him do that shit." He also famously pulled a guy's eye out in a bar fight, and that what one a terrifying man. Here's the thing: he was like and the yet, most gentle, loves loving. As long as you man. didn't fuck with him, yeah. Like I mean, it never sounds like he was the one who started anything. Never, it just sounds never. like. People would try to fight him and he would finish the fight. What would happen is these wrestlers would go into bars around the country and like douchebags would be like, Oh, look yeah. at the big fucking wrestler. I bet you I can whoop his ass. And most of, some of the time they'd beat up Shawn Michaels in an alleyway, and some yeah. of the times they'd have like a fair fight. But Haku, they'd like punch oh. him, his head wouldn't move, he'd just reach out casually and pull your eyeball out of the socket, yeah. and that would end the discussion. White Lightning, Tim Horner debuted in the WWF. White Lightning. Jim Cornette's got quite a story about Tim Horner stealing his fax machine in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. That is the randomest collection of words that you've just (laughs) said to me. I do not know what that story is. (sighs) Kerry Von Erich's prosthetic foot came off during a match against Colonel De Beers in Las Vegas. Speaking of a random collection of words, if you were Colonel De Beers, wouldn't you just immediately come out and cut a promo like, I kicked that fucker's foot off? (laughs) This thing, no one knew Carrie Von Eric didn't have a foot outside of his immediate family. Imagine you were like a little kid in the front row wearing a Carrie Von Eric shirt and his fucking foot falls off. That would be terrifying. This was the best kept secret in wrestling. Not even the guys he was working with knew, because he didn't show any sign of it physically, and he would shower with his boots on. I don't know how... (laughs) I think he told the guys he had some kind of ankle ankle brace on that was hard to take off or something like that. I don't remember how much of his foot exactly was, like, the prosthetic. Because, obviously, like, he was still able to do pretty much everything that he had done before. So it must have been a pretty impressive prosthetic. Junkyard Dog and Don Morocco both left the company. Good riddance. Don Morocco had been in this company for like 15 fucking years. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He, I mean, he's just one of those poor guys. I mean, him and JYD are both guys who just had their big runs. I mean, J.Y.D. made pretty good money because he came in at the right time, 84, 85. So I think he had some half a million dollar years. But yeah, like Morocco had his big run back before the national expansion. So he never really made the money that he could have. But he just wanted to go back to Hawaii at this point. He was getting tired of this life. Well, one of the things is too, is that people don't know that Don Morocco was a huge baby face early in his career. And when he came into this territory, the problem was that WWE is a babyface territory, but in the 70s and 80s, it was a one babyface territory. Yeah. If you weren't Bob Backlund or Pedro Morales or Bruno San Martino, you didn't get make money. Like, there just wasn't anywhere for you to go. Bad News Brown assaulted Jack Tunney on The Brother Love Show. We've all wanted to do that. I can't blame them. This is very funny. Whenever you see bad news in this company, doesn't it just feel like, what the fuck is he doing here? He's way too real for this. Way way too cool for this company. You just always kind of feel like any minute he might just start shooting on motherfuckers. Uh, the Rock's grandmother, Leah Maiavia, and her business partners were arrested by the FBI on extortion charges, for which they were ultimately acquitted. What? They were allegedly threatening another Hawaiian. There was another, somebody else was trying to promote shows in Hawaii, and they were demanding they pay, you know, like a rights fee to them and threatening them
1: allegedly Dad's,
0: they were Dad's quitted right. yeah this great, is all dude. covered this is all covered on young rock which sounds like you've never watched i have never watched a single episode of it so no i did not know that sorry duane it's wild to think that there were constantly competing promotions in hawaii, in hawaii. there were two promotions in hawaii like th- there's not enough room there should only be oh. one Brian Blair was reportedly fired for refusing to lose to Arne Anderson and Tully Blanchard. Good fucking riddance. What a piece of shit. Why the fuck would you die on that hill, honestly? Because guys were fucking weirdos back then. Oh, these are the guys from the other company. They work here now. What a bunch of marks. Terry Taylor was repackaged as the red rooster and picked up Bobby Heenan as his manager. Here's the thing. I think people don't understand about the red rooster. The gimmick was literally that he sucked. Heenan is, Heenan's whole thing was like, I'm going to take the worst wrestler and make him a star just to prove I can. This is absolutely what he says in his interviews with Terry Taylor standing right next to him. This whole thing was a rib on Terry Taylor. I don't care what Bruce Prichard says. The fact that anybody thought this was seriously intended Like it was always presented to us As like oh man they actually thought this was going to work Hook 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 There's no way Vince McMahon thought this was going to work There's just no way The fact that they pushed it for real anyway Is pretty fucking stupid Ted DiBiase purchased Hercules' contract From Bobby Heenan And referred to him as his slave Yeah Ooh, Can't be buying people That's not okay uh, it's just world class. Ran the Cotton Bowl and drew thirty five hundred people. I would hate to see the Jerry Jarrett payoffs from that show. You would owe him money if you worked on that show. Your payoff would be so low. So the Cotton Bowl holds like what a hundred thousand people? I think think it's more like fifty or sixty thousand. But, it's but a even if you like football stadium, even if you curtained it off, it's still. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> they weren't currently I mean, even at their, pe- at their peak, I think they might have hit 40,000 for when Kerry Von Erich beat Flair for the title. And even that, you know, that's fans on half the stadium. Right. This was embarrassing. This, they weren't even, like, it was probably just literally people sitting on the field. That's just trash. Memphis ran world title unification matches between Kerry Von Erich and Jerry Lawler for months without ever actually unifying the belts. God, carny motherfuckers. How funny is that? How many of those shows would you go to before you were funny? Like, wait a minute. They're never going <laughs> to yeah. actually do this. How many times did they run Evansville, Indiana on a Wednesday night promising people that this was the time you were going to see the titles unified? You, like, go to a show in, like, Huntsville, Alabama, and you're like, wait a minute. We're in Huntsville. We're not going to be the ones who get the fucking title change. And finally, the hammer. Vince paid a reported $9.5 million for the rights to promote a Sugar Ray Leonard fight that was an absolute financial disaster. Meltzer estimated Vince lost over $4 million on the deal. Whoa. This actually fills in a blank, which is uh, several guys leave the company in 1989 John Studd, uh, Arnon Tully, because their money was, they just were getting terrible payoffs and they couldn't figure out why because the houses were all full. And this is like between this and no holds barred losing a bunch of money. That's the answer. Like Vince blew millions of dollars on stuff that had nothing to do with wrestling and was, you know, having to pay himself back for it by not paying the boys. I mean, I'm going to park the word allegedly right in front of the whole rest of this next sentence that I'm about to say. But uh, so this is definitely the most cocaine Vince McMahon was ever on. Right. Like. He's just launching whatever bullshit ideas at the wall he can think of because he thinks he's invincible. Sugar Ray Leonard in 1988, dude. Well, which fight? Actually, I'm curious which fight was this. This might have been Thomas Hearns. It's and like pretty good fight. Pretty how no much? Of a, but how much of a disaster does it have to be to lose four million fucking dollars, like? How much money did you put into this stupid ass idea? It was $9 million to get it. And I think the show did about 300,000 buys. Why would you pay 9 million? It's not going to do that. Vince, I think, just thought he was the pay-per-view wizard in that boxing. I mean, that 300000 that's bigger than most of the WWF pay-per-views are doing at this time. But they, they don't, don't cost nearly, $9 I mean, million to put on. <laughs> it's the same thing we're talking about with these Hollywood studios making these 250 and $300 million movies and just putting themselves in such a gigantic hole. Like when you start up with an upfront cost of nearly $10 million, that's a hard hole to dig out of. It's just wild to me. Also, like, people don't remember that, but a big part of the reason why Mike Tyson was such a revelation in a box office draw is because boxing was on its ass in the late 80s. People were not as interested. That's part of this, is boxing had not really succeeded on pay-per-view to this point. They were just having trouble convincing. Because historically, boxing matches, they wouldn't necessarily be broadcast live on broadcast TV, but a week after they happened, they'd be, you know broadcast on the wide world of sports on abc people were not used to the idea that they would have to pay to Fox and on tv so right. they bring in vince thinking vince is the guru of pay-per-view he'll be able to figure this out and despite the fact they promoted the hell out of this fight on wwf tv they could not pull it off well especially at this point these are the least Of all the WWE fans that have ever been, there has never been less crossover with real fighting than I think the fans they had at this point. Like, the fans are all kids. Yeah, you're promoting to kids and families, bro. They're not here to see boxing. Oh, man. So to get into the show, it's Thursday, November the 24th, 1988, Thanksgiving night. We're at the Richfield Coliseum in Richfield, Ohio, which this arena is in a very strange place. Cavaliers played, but Richfield is like 45 minutes outside Cleveland. They intentionally built the arena halfway between Cleveland and Akron in order to try to draw fans from both of them. Which is so fucking funny to me as if like Akron was a place that you absolutely had to get a hold of that fucking market. Otherwise, what are you doing? This is known pretty much across Ohio as a venue that kind of sucks. So... (laughs) We're holding a big-ass pay-per-view in Richfield. They had sold it out the previous year, but here they only do about $13,000. is pitch black in this arena when they go to the wide shots. Holy shit, it it looks terrible. Darkest midnight in here to cover that the upper deck is mostly empty. And it's so funny because I feel like they turn up the lights in the ring more too because this is like the brightest lights I've ever seen on a WWE show.
1: That's going to contribute shot, to my it's
0: shot like an it's shot like an N.W.A. show. Yeah. My thesis statement for this show is that it is the ugliest show that they have ever aired in history. And we'll go further into that later. But like, that's a part of it. The show does a three point one buy rate for about three hundred and ten thousand buys It's down from three. 3- the previous year but it's an okay number a company would have grossed about 2.5 million on that it's not bad but it's not great either it's funny too because i feel like they are pushing this mega powers explode story they know what they're doing we're halfway into it now right yeah i feel like they're so sure that wrestlemania is going to be this slam dunk awesome fest they're not even bothering to push other storylines like, it's like there's literally nothing else going on in this company but that. This is Oddly literally... enough, they're right, though. Yeah, that's the thing. Is they're just Dini's like He's going to be one of the biggest home runs in history. Eh? We don't even need to fucking bother with the rest of this shit. Because there's nothing on this show that... Literally, they just put these matches on paper. There's no effort put into this. This is just like a, fuck it. Why not? Throw everybody on. It's all good. On commentary, the team of Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura... I love Jesse being dressed as a pilgrim. What a stud. Jesse being dressed as a pilgrim, and then the very first words out of his mouth on this broadcast are I guess I'm happy to be here on Thanksgiving instead of at home. <laughs> Last place in the world he wants to be on Thanksgiving night in fucking Richfield, Ohio. Oh, man. And here's the thing. The New York territory was always the one territory that didn't run Thanksgiving shows. Yep. <laughs> Every other Vince territory. That was their big night. Vince didn't want to work on Thanksgiving. It's the only holiday he likes. Yeah. Um, Opening match. We've got the Ultimate Jabronis, the Ultimate Warrior, Brutus Beefcake, the Blue Blazers, Sam Houston, and Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. Against the honky tonk man, Ron Bass, dangerous Danny Davis, Greg the Hammer Valentine, and Bad News Brown. That is quite the collection of jabronis. This is when you say the fucking jabroni team. You are one hundred percent right. Yeah. None of these people should even be on the show, except for <laughs> Warrior Beefcake and Honky yeah. Tonk. No one else has any business yeah. being here. Danny Davis, really? <laughs> He, I didn't realize. I, I thought he, I thought that whole thing just sort of ended after WrestleMania three. I didn't realize that was still going on. Yeah, he's still wearing his referee tights. Like, what are yeah. we doing, guys? He's been a referee in a year now. Come on. Um, the teams enter together to keep the entrances to a reasonable length. Uh. Only got only one manager here. We've only got Jimmy Hart, who's the manager for Honky and Davis and Valentine. Other matches tonight, we'll have three and four managers on the floor per match. Well, you would also think that this would be a good opportunity, right? Like we have managers dictate so much of the company at this yeah. point. They have huge stables, so you would think these matches would be broken up into like Warriors team versus the team of Jimmy Hart, all of his boys. Yeah, and then yeah, all the can boys. Yeah. You would think that that's what we would be doing, but that it doesn't break down that way. I believe Brunzel was a replacement for Don Morocco because he had just quit, but who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Brunzel also, he Brian Blair quit, so he doesn't have a tag team partner anymore. Oh no, the killer bees broke up. I'm sure he was crying just the, at home. He's just the killer bee now. The killer bee. We get a quick first elimination as Davis passes out in beefcake sleeper hold in just over a minute. Um, according to Bruce Pritchard, the wrestlers were coached not to break up pins or submissions. That makes sense because otherwise these matches will never end. I just feel like they should say on commentary that if you break, like breaking up a pin or submission is an automatic disqualification to yes. explain why the wrestlers don't bother to do it. Or say like you only get one per match or something like yeah, that. Like one that's saved. just, yeah, that that makes sense. Because then you could have a wrestler like break up a pin and take the yeah. DQ for his team. But that's the right thing to do. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's, That would create a situation where, like Danny Davis gets himself disqualified to save Honky Tonk Man because, you know, who cares about Danny Davis anyway? Right. Um, after five minutes, bad news hits Brunzel with the ghetto blaster in Penzem. Yep. <laughs> Two minutes later, Valentine accidentally hits bad news, and bad news walks away and is counted out, just like he did the previous year. I love this about bad news Brown. This was them understanding this character that he would always walk out on his teammates. That's the yeah. That's the funny thing is that like he doesn't give a shit no. at all. He never will. <laughs> doesn't care about these crackers. But he's damn sure not going to lose, so fuck off, guys. <laughs> no, no. That man never did a job in his entire life. Bless him, because he shouldn't have. No, yeah, he could whoop any of these guys if wrestling was real. Exactly. Bass pins Houston in 10 minutes with a power slam. What the hell is Sam Houston? The five on five matches are too much. Four on I feel like you cut a lot you cut these matches down to four on four, you would have solved, I feel like, a problem in each of these match each of these matches. I mean this babyface team is a joke to have both Sam Houston and Jim Brunzel on it. Honestly, you could do like one three on three, one four on four, one five on five, and that would save a lot of time. And like you could put Do you know who Sam Houston is? Yeah, he's uh, Jake's he's, brother, right? Jake's Jake's brother, yeah. Yes, another one of the tortured sons of Grizzly. Yeah, not good. That family well, the funny situation is, like, was pretty bad. Like, Sam Houston's a jabroni, but at least he looked like he has some potential. Oh, yeah. He's a good-looking good looking guy. and yeah, yeah, just never quite came together for him. I think he may have had some similar issues to what Jake had. That's unfortunate. Yeah, you can't really push any member of that family, Jake included. Yeah. Uh, we're down to Warrior, Beefcake, and Blazer against Honky Bass and Valentine. Of course, the Blue Blazer is Owen Hart. I should mention Owen Hart under a mask with a cape. I think he gets hurt in this match and he's out for a while. Doesn't he? I kind of, you know, hot take. I like the Blue Blazer. I think you like the, Blue the Blue Blazer, Blazer. might have. I just, to me, with heart gonna work? Did you really need another heart in this company? That is the thing. Like, the only thing that you could do is just get rid of Neidheart and just throw Owen in with Brett, and, like, that would probably be great. But, like, at the same time, he's a baby face through and through. I don't hate, like, doing, like, a superhero little thing with Owen. That's perfectly fine. I think the Blue Blazer looks stupid as shit, but, like, I don't mind the idea. Uh, The idea of trying to make Owen... (laughs) I guess the other think we could i guess if you want a luchador you could just bring in an actual luchador that's though. the thing is that there are lots of those uh warrior comes in beats down bass he tags out to blazer blazer gets caught in valentine's figure four and taps out after about two minutes uh beefcake then gets hurt over for a while Him and Honky end up fighting on the floor and they both get counted out. So we've got Warrior against Bass and Valentine. Well, how do you think that's going to go? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that when it's two-on-one and you're just like, oh, these dudes are in trouble. Fucking Valentine looks so blown up at this point. And literally, he's worked for maybe 30 seconds in this match. (laughs) As Monsoon points out, it takes him 30 minutes just to get warmed up. Jesus. Was that a way of calling him fat? I'm not really sure. I think it's meant to, like, praise <laughs> his cardio. That? I mean, like, I sometimes guess. they would say that about, like, Flair, that, like, he's not even warmed up until he's 45 minutes into the match. But when you say it against yeah. about Valentine, it's like, no, it's not. No, he's, don't say that. Valentine in the WWF. One of the most uninspiring wrestlers I can imagine. I've never seen a wrestler who looked less like they wanted to be there <sighs> than wwf Greg Valentine. <laughs> And that might yeah, be his face, I just of, It I don't feels know. like this maybe, I think maybe this also, this just wasn't really his style of wrestling, his era of wrestling. He liked to work those long, gritty, 30-minute, you know, Southern Territory matches. I'll just always remember how absolutely miserable he was having to be in Rhythm and oh, Blues, God. even though that, that was, was hilarious. That was by far the best thing he could do at that point in his career is being a heat seeker tag team, right? Like, that's money for him. They made him him dye his hair jet black. Oh, I'm so sorry you don't get to be platinum blonde like every other motherfucker south of the Mason-Dixie line. Dickhead. Yeah. So, of course, Warrior makes quick work of the heels. He pins them both after two minutes. He's the sole survivor in a 17-minute match. Not a particularly good one. My favorite part is he beats Valentine for the last fall. All he does is run off the ropes and give him a double axe handle and pins him. Yeah. It's clear Valentine is like, you're not lifting me up and doing shit to me. <laughs> not taking the dick and balls slam. I'm not, not you're not getting, grabbing a whole handful of me, buddy. Yeah. Not getting his dick and balls put in a vice by Warrior. It's not about that life. The dick and ball vice. Should have just been his finish. Next up, we've got the clusterfuck of the century. It's a 10-on-10 tag oh. match. <laughs> Five tag teams on each side. We've got the babyface team of the Powers of Pain, the Rockers, the British Bulldogs, the Heart Foundation, and the Young Stallions against the heel team of Demolition, the Brainbusters, the Bolsheviks, the Rougeos, and the Conquistadors. A lot of talent in there, but again, this probably would have been better if it was four-on-four. Four. You want to talk about striving to survive. This is a new cool. viral challenge. Sit through this whole to stay goddamn awake. match and stay awake. Yes. Oh, my God. First of all, once all these dudes are on the ring apron, there's not an inch of space around the <laughs> ring that isn't, doesn't have dude in it. It's like a cage match with dude, And everybody's, like, pasty and old and kind of fat and just kind of standing there sweating under the unbelievably bright lights. It's just, it's like a repulsive image. 47 minutes this goes. I I defy you to tell me a move that happens in this match that is not a punch. I defy you. (laughs) Not a whole lot. Um... The rules are that when one member of a team is pinned or submitted, both members are out. So Thank if hypothetically, yeah, if, you know, Dynamite Kid gets pinned, both him and Davey Boy are out of the match. Otherwise, At this would have gone 17 that. hours. Obviously, the face team is a little bit stronger. You've got four top teams there, and then the Young Stallions are jobbers. On the heel team, you've got... Three strong teams, if you count the Rougeos, then the Bolsheviks and the Conquistadors are both. I mean, the Conquistadors are truly jobbers, and the Bolsheviks basically are. Yeah, let's be clear. The, the Rougeos aren't as big as they would be, but they're because they're just, like, really getting their shit together. Yeah. Um, the Bolsheviks are done. Arden's only just got here. Axe and Smash are about to leave. So, like, the heels don't really have much going on. All the babyface teams are incredible. They're all the teams that you think of from this era. Heart Foundation and the Rockers and the British Bulldogs and the Powers of Pain, who are better than all the other ones. Absolutely. Uh, This should be like a 20-minute job out babyfaces win, but it's not. Nope. So the one thing I find really intriguing here is that you have... Jacques Rougeau and Dynamite Kid in the same room together after Rougeau knocked the fuck out of Dynamite a couple you would of weeks think up. that the entire idea of this would be like we got to keep these two separate yeah. but that really doesn't happen. No. Again, compared to today where CM Punk and The Elite have to you know have separate shows so that their paths never have to cross. Right. Here they're Back just then, like, ah, oh, we'll put them in a match against each other. Who cares?" Vince is like, be professional or I'll fucking fire your ass. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it was a meeting they had with both of them telling them that they'd better be professional in this match or they'd be fired and wouldn't get paid. The funniest part about that is that basically Vince had to go to Dynamite and be like, look, you got your ass whooped. You just got to deal with it. (laughs) The guy, on some level, I think that ruined that man's life. Oh, yeah, because his whole shit is literally just that he's the toughest, baddest man on the block who bullies everyone. And then when little Jacques Rougeau, who no one takes seriously, drops Richmond it with one shot. Jacques brunch, Rougeau knocked him out. You know how much everybody must have made fun of him for that? Also, I bet you, like, Jacques Rougeau didn't pay for a beer for the next six months now. <laughs> Now everybody, every that's the Jacques Rougeau, legendary dickhead who nobody liked. Everybody took his side in this. Nobody could stand Dynamite. Yeah, if somebody actually likable had been the one to punch out Dynamite, we would talk about that story with bated breath as the coolest thing anyone ever did. The fact that we don't is just because Jacques Rougeau was such a dickhead. This is the final pay-per-view appearance for the Bulldogs. They've already given their notice that they're leaving. I think they maybe do a few house show shots after this, but they're out. They're, you know, in theory, uh, they're going to do a stopover in Calgary, and then I think they're headed back to all Japan where they've been big stars in the past. And that run doesn't actually go all that well because Dynamite's pretty much physically done now. His back is Fucked. Yeah. You can see it here. You can't do anything anymore. The funny thing is, so the Bulldogs are about to leave. Demolition's about to leave. The Bolsheviks are pretty no, much not. done. No, Demolition's not going anywhere. Oh, but isn't this where they lose, or is that next year? Well, this is the, This is the double turn, but they're not going anywhere. Oh, that's right. I'm thinking about later on. Okay, never mind. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of change in this match. Like, if you were a new fan turning in who hadn't watched, like, the previous shows you'd be like who yeah. the fuck are half Rocker, of these people? rockers and Brainbusters are both br- brand new and they're gonna kick their feud off here yeah i love the rockers and Brainbusters feud because it feels so clearly like vin and bruce and pat just being like oh man can you imagine how good those matches would be yeah i want to see that literally it's like the best tag team in awa against the best tag team in nwa yeah. and vince is like well i got the best of both let's do it <laughs> The perfect 80s babyface team against the perfect eighties heel team. It's almost a shame that we didn't get more of it. I know we did get yeah. a lot of it, but like th- that could have main evented the B Towns, you know? I feel like those have to have been some absolutely dynamite house show matches they had. I would imagine I think I think they picked out the best one and put it on the Shawn Michaels DVD, so I I may have to track that one down and watch it. Yeah. The problem is, is that all the best matches that took place during this era did not happen anywhere you can find them. They happened on random house shows in the middle of nowhere. This is where we get one of my favorite Survivor Series things. The heel team has four managers. They've got Fuji, <laughs> Jimmy Hart, Keenan and Slick all on the floor. And none of them like I, it's funny to see he he didn't just stands there and doesn't do a thing in this match because this is all about Fuji. He doesn't want to steal his show. That is the funny thing, is that, like, you didn't even need to have all the managers come out if everyone else is just going to stand around while Fuji does all the work. Oh, man. First elimination, Brett pins Raymond with a small package after five minutes. They may have intentionally booked this to get the Rougeos out of there quickly to try to make sure him and Dynamite didn't have to work together. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Uh, ten minutes pass before our next elimination where zukov rolls through a crossbody and pins Jim Powers to eliminate the Young Stallions. We're just getting all the jobbers out one by one. Let's go. Come on. They It's like they literally so like you would think that they would start just by picking off all the people who don't matter right yeah. off the bat so we can get down to the good teams. As you'll see, that is not what happens. Nope. Yeah, we're 15 minutes in, and there have been two eliminations. There's still 16 guys on the apron. And again, it's just a—and the cameraman, because more often than not, they can't really—they can't do the hard cam camera. (laughs) I actually loved the way they shot this. They had to use the crane. Yes. See, this is fascinating. They can't use the hard cam camera because they sold so little of the seats that you'd be able to see how shitty the, the, the attendance was. If they use the if they use the hard cam, you'd just be staring like Axe's ass the entire match because exactly. the entire ring apron is full of dudes. So instead, they have like the guy. There's sometimes they have like the guy on the ring apron, but usually they just have like the crane swinging in to get yep. shots over people's shoulders. I I've thought ne- this was so cool. I loved this. Yeah, that was very cool. The problem is, is when you get go like, all right, we got to go to a different shot other than just the one crane. And then it's just like guys pointing the camera directly up at Axe's ass. Let's see Boris Zukov's taint. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Jannetty pins Zukov with a sunset flip at the 18-minute mark. And then another nine minutes go by before Tully pins Brett at the 27-minute mark. Brett hit him with a German suplex He bridged into the pin But Brett's shoulders were down And Tully got a shoulder up before three Again Such a perfectly Tully way to win It's like yep. he didn't beat Brett He just snuck yep. his way out <laughs> Brett Screwed Brett at Survivor Series What a shock Look at, l- Now let's be clear about this Bret Hart leaves this match Before the fucking Conquistadors do <laughs> Yeah we got demolition, brainbusters, and conquistadors against bulldogs, powers of pain, and rockers, three on three. Uh, we get a brawl between the brainbusters and the rockers, and they both did get disqualified at 28 minutes gone. So we've got demolition and the conquistadors against the bulldogs and powers of pain. You'd think we'd be winding this down, but there's still about another 15 minutes left here. Yeesh. Dynamite, this is a diving headbutt. Smash pins him with a clothesline, and Dynamite's gone. Timed it out so that the Rougeos could be out of the arena by the time he got back through the curtain. I was just thinking to myself, why are the Bulldogs still in this match? But now that you yeah, say that, I bet that's you that's why. exactly why. Because somebody escorted the Rougeos to get their stuff and got, got them in their car to go back to the hotel. <laughs> so that, yeah, they would not even dynamite would not cross paths here um we've got the powers against demolition and the conquistadors fuji keeps getting up on the apron smash yells at him to get off as smash hits the ropes fuji pulls the ropes down on him and smash gets counted out and demolition eliminated um the live crowd doesn't catch any of this because it's a blink thing. Ventura and monsoon do a very good job on commentary of explaining what happened here that Fuji very clearly intentionally betrayed demolition. And I'm glad they did, because I didn't really catch it either, to be honest. Yeah. So like there's so yeah, much you're going on. Missing. Yeah. But yeah. Axe yells at Fuji on the floor. Fuji hits him with his cane smash grabs fuji and throws him to axe and axe body slams him the powers then help fuji up and bring him over to their corner uh fuji trips one of the conquistadors with his can- cane barbarian hits him with the headbutt and gets the pin the powers are survivors after 42 minutes the crowd pops for them winning because they're just three of them still as the babyface team and then Demolition runs back in and jumps the powers and runs them off. And like, I don't know, the crowd kind of gets that the turn happened here, but I'm um, not, not really. You know, just hard to explain to the live crowd exactly what happened here. You could potentially pull this off, but in those days when like the crowds aren't really taught to look for complex storylines like that. Yeah. And like there's so many people around the ring and there's so much chaos going on. It's a really hard sell. And the fact that like, I do love the idea that like Fuji immediately turns babyface, joins the powers, and then immediately cheats to yeah. help them win because that's what Fuji does, baby. It's not a ba- no. It's a double turn. Like the powers yeah. are heels now. Um, but, like I know that they are, but like not to you. My response was like, "Fuck, Mr. Fuji turned babyface. Hell yeah." <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think pretty. Straightforward here. Demolition was getting cheered and the powers weren't really catching on quite the way they wanted them to, so simpler to just flip roll. You can probably get the powers booed with Fuji managing them and the crowd's already cheering Demolition, so they'll just keep cheering them. Well the irony is, is that if you had given the powers the same push you gave Demolition, they also would have gotten cheered because you're just making them awesome badasses who always win. Like that's that's not yeah. that's gonna get anybody over. So, like flipping roles, you're just going to get the other one cheered. Backstage, Sean Mooney interviews Bad News Brent, who says he wants a shot at Randy Savage. Uh, those two would headline Madison Square Garden in November. Cool. Uh, we interview Fuji in the powers of pain to drive home the heel turn. Fuji says demolition stopped listening to him. And then I think they I think they clipped the intermission and then Mean Gene interviews Andre's team and Mooney interviews the Mega Powers team. But it's not that match yet. We've got another five on five match. It's Andre the Giant, Dino Bravo, Rick Rude, Mr. Perfect and Harley Race against Jim Duggan, Jake Roberts, Ken Patera, Tito Santana and Scott Casey. You know what, when we said that the first match the babyface team was a bunch of jobbers I feel like we were being unfair Who the fuck is Scott Scott Casey? Casey? Scott Casey is like 40 years old, he's an old dude, he had wrestled a lot Uh, He wrestled in Houston and I think he wrestled in Mid-South and maybe Crockett, but he's a guy at the end of his career His Wikipedia page picture is in black and white, and that's really all you need to know Uh Harley is done here he's not even the king anymore uh, uh it's, perfect isn't it perfect isn't himself yet he he's wearing trunks he doesn't have the singlet yet he doesn't have the music yet he doesn't feel right have they done the videos already like he's like debuted fully they've those have started to, those have been airing but it just takes it takes time for stuff to catch on in this era Because you're you're not watching TV and seeing it every week. Like, it doesn't happen Yeah, the TV's fragmented. There's all these different syndicated TV shows. People don't necessarily catch everyone each week. So it takes time to really drive something home. Right. So he hasn't really caught on yet. Um, Rude is awesome. Rude is rude. Dino Bravo sucks, as we've established. Ken Patera sucks. Tito Santana's lame. He just, he's just kind of coasting here. Um... His tag partner, Rick Martel, has been home with his sick wife all year, so he just doesn't really have a lot to do. I was so confused about Scott Casey in this match because I didn't know who the fuck he was. But also because Jesse keeps calling him Martel. He keeps saying Martel (laughs) over and over. That is insulting to Rick Martel. That's the thing is I'm like, this is not Rick Martel. What the fuck is going on? Martell is, like, the world's handsomest man, and I Scott agree. Casey is that. Um, First elimination is Patera being pinned with the rude awakening after about ten minutes. That was a long time to make us go without anybody being pinned. Ken Patera who has the worst look, I just need to reiterate this, in the history of professional wrestling at this point, is just in here doing shit for like six of these ten minutes. Why? Who's that for? I just, to me, the way I would put these matches together is I feel like I would just immediately, in the first couple minutes, try to get rid of everybody who isn't over. So like, let's immediately get rid of Bravo, Harley, Patera, Casey, and yeah, probably Tito, like two minutes each. Yeah, and you're just Val- trying to get down to Duggan and Roberts versus Andre and Rude. That's all you need, right? Like, that's the that's the plan. And you want to showcase perfect, too. Yeah. So, like, there's nothing about this match that couldn't be improved by not getting rid of everyone else in the first five minutes and getting down to the three heels against the two babyfaces. That's perfectly fine. Casey jumps in the ring like a dumbass. And immediately gets pinned by Bravo after a side slam. Gino Bravo's finisher is the side slam, where he just picks you up by the, from the side gently and lays you down gently. It's not like he hits it with stank or anything. No, and even if he did, like this is the most pathetic finisher I've ever seen. Tito gets Harley with the flying forearm and pins him. Uh, Andre makes quick work of Tito and pins him in about a minute after sitting down on him. Sure. Luckily, I don't think Andre accidentally shot on him like he did Bad News Brown that one time. Allegedly. <laughs> but not actually. That definitely did happen. Yeah. Uh, so we've got Jake and Duggan against Andre, Rude, Bravo, and Perfect. Uh, The heel team works over Jake for a while. Jake recovers. He hits the short-arm clothesline on Bravo. He signals for the DDT, but Rude cuts him off with a clothesline from the apron. That was a cool spot. The genius of this whole period here is that, like, Jake's whole thing is that he can't hold his own against four guys. But if he hits the DDT... DDT can... That's the equalizer. So he's going to spend like 10 minutes trying to hit the DDT, and the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger the closer he comes. It's just a genius way to lay this match out. Jake manages to tag out Duggan. Duggan gets tripped by Frenchie Martin, and then, like a dumbass, grabs his two by four and hits Bravo with it right in front of the referee. Jake's got to be like, what the hell, dude? Like, seriously, what a fucking asshole. Also, he's been, like, aggroing Andre this entire match, and just, like, pointing in his face and being like, ha-ha, beat your ass, Andre. So he gets Andre all riled up, and then he leaves. (laughs) Thanks, Duggan. Yeah, so Jake, it's four-on-one. We've got Jake against Andre Bravo, rude and perfect. I love how Randy Orton is the spiritual successor to Jake Roberts in Survivor Series. You would never think that, but yeah, basically... Because it's like the same right? A guy thing, who puts right? in overwhelming circumstances and then will just take everybody out with his badass finisher. Yeah, his finisher that comes out of nowhere. That's what makes it perfect. I guarantee you that somebody pitched that to Orton. Like, this is what made Jake so special, is that he could hit this shit out of nowhere. We we always have to, every time we cover a Survivor Series, give a shout-out to the greatest of all time, Randy Orton. When he goes into the Hall of Fame, I hope they mention that. Like, the greatest Survivor Series Mr. performer. Mr. Survivor Series. Because he's the only man who never cared about friends. He would join these teams. Everyone would get eliminated but him. He'd sigh, put the team on his back, and win by himself. So Jake fights heroically for about 10 minutes. He pulls Rude's tights down, and as Rude bends down to try to pick them up, Nails his ass with the DDT and pins him. What a fucking spot. This is might be my favorite DDT of all time. Just like, Oh no, I got to cover up my dick. Bam. DDT. (laughs) (laughs) Andre jumps in and chokes Jake until he gets disqualified. So Jake's made halfway. We got Jake against um, perfect and Bravo, but Perfect jumps in and immediately gets the pin on Jake because he's knocked out from being choked by Andre. Perfect and Bravo survive in a 30 minute match. Bravo should have gotten pinned by Jake. This should have just been perfect. Cause this would have been a great win yeah. for perfect to be like Soul the opportunist. Survivor. Yeah. Um, but also like Andre chokes Jake for no joke, like three minutes straight. So like it, it makes sense for Jake to lose. Even the ref's like, I can't break this up. It's Andre. So, like, sorry, you're just going to (laughs) die. Sorry about that. Jake recovers and grabs Damien and jumps in the ring to run the heel team off. And Andre runs faster than he's ever run in his entire career. Andre runs about a 4-4-40 back to the curtain. (laughs) Mean Gene interviews the heel team for the main event. buried. These main event, these backstage interviews... They're in front of a screen, so it's a Survivor Series logo, but it's not actually a logo. They're just in front of a screen that they're projecting the Survivor Series logo onto, and it looks like shit. It's to the point where, like, either A, somebody told Vince, like, oh, man, have you ever heard of green screen technology? We can use it to project it on anything we want. We'll make it look super cool. But they're doing it in such a bad job. That, like, you can see the blue border around everyone. So they always look like all look like weird aliens. This looks like a home movie from like 1995. (laughs) It's terrible. And they get halfway through the show, they realize it. And so they start doing these bizarre close ups on people where they're so close in on your face, you can see every pore in your fucking face. It's horrible. (laughs) Like,. They could have printed a backdrop that said Survivor Series for 50 I almost, bucks. I almost feel like they like printed a whole banner backdrop like normal, but somebody misspelled Survivor Series and it said like Burvivor <laughs> Series, and they had to be like, oh, shit. <laughs> Get out the $100,000 gimmick. Yeah. All right. Main event time. We've got Hogan, Savage, Hillbilly Jim, Coco Beware and Hercules against Ted DiBiase, Big Boss Man, Akeem, King Haku, and Terry Taylor. Okay, now, oh, there's boy. two ways to do a match like this. Because the the whole thing about this show, this match, the only thing that matters is that you get out of this with Randy Savage being pissed off at Hulk Hogan. Two ways you can accomplish it. The way they did, which I think was pretty good, but not perfect. and Or I would have had Hogan lose in the first 30 seconds. Wow. You can't do that. No, I would have had, like, everybody fucking jump him and, like, roll him up and cheat the to boss hell. A boss man nail him with the nightstick and he's out cold. Some sort of cheating-ass thing. So then it's just Randy. Like, Hogan goes yeah. to the back Randy but they all go out and then it's Randy versus five right and then Randy fights back and fights back yeah and he beats them all without Hogan but then Hogan comes in and jumps up and down and celebrates with Elizabeth like he did it you know what I mean but maybe that's too heelish for Hogan I don't know but that that would have been a little too I, I mean, the obvious thing that I feel like what I would have done is just have these three ba- these three baby faces are all jabronis, have them all get picked off in the first couple minutes and have it be Hogan and Savage against all five. Here's the truth. What this match should have been is just that doomsday cage from WCW. <laughs> yeah. The mega powers versus every heel in the company. <laughs> or you know what? You know what? They should have done like that uh, Cena and Orton versus the entire Raw roster thing that they did. <laughs> Yeah, the entire heel roster. Mega powers versus eighteen guys. So the heel team has Slick, Virgil, and Heenan with them. All the faces except for Hogan come out to Savage's music together, and then Hogan gets his own entrance, which is apparently apparently for real. upset Savage, but that's the whole point that that's Hogan the story. is stage Savage. Yeah, yeah. Which, but that's what that's what made this work so well is. Ever, all of this is real. Like, Randy Savage is actually jealous of Hulk Hogan. He's jealous of, you know, whether Elizabeth has feelings for him and whether Hogan is into Elizabeth. He's jealous of the fact that Hogan's a bigger star for him. Those are all real feelings that the real Lanny or Randy Poffo is experiencing. The funny thing is, Savage isn't really acting here. The acting is being done by Hulk Hogan, bless his heart. Yeah who is pretending like he doesn't feel any of those same feelings towards Randy. (laughs) Yeah. Pretending like he's just a good guy Randy's friend. But also, like, uh, imagine from Hulk's perspective. He has to convincingly portray a guy who keeps accidentally fucking over his best friend, or is it accidental? And Hulk Hulk does a great job. Would do something like that. But Hulk does a very compelling job in all of this, of making you think... You could think to yourself... Well, is he fucking with Savage? Does he want Elizabeth? You could believe it. He's just manipulating this whole situation to his own ends. Yeah. There was debate in the dirt sheets at the time about whether it be Hogan or Savage who turns heel here. Initially, I was just like, oh, typical dirt sheet bullshit. It's got to be Hogan who turns heel because they don't like Hogan. But then when I thought more about it, Hogan is starting to wind down here. You need a new babyface to carry the company. They end up going with the Ultimate Warrior instead, and that's a complete disaster. Wouldn't they have been better off pushing Savage as the babyface? Well, here's the thing. I I, I bet you that they considered it, right? And ultimately, I think that they realized that the money at this WrestleMania is in Hogan as a babyface versus heel Savage. But I do think that they sabotaged their future business. Because once you take the belt off of Savage, you can't help him beat Hogan again for it. He just fucking lost. So, like, while while you get some inspired stuff from Savage after that, the best thing for their future business would have been to keep the belt on Savage. Yeah. Like, Savage is a—he's not going to be Hogan, but nobody can be Hogan. But he would have been a much better champion than the Warrior turned out to be. Here's the other thing. Hindsight. I think people also forget that, like, Savage was a household name in a way that really only Hogan and Piper were. Like, he was obviously a tier below Hogan. Because the Slim Jim commercials? Yeah. But, I mean, like, when you ask people, like, in, then, now, whatever. Can you name a wrestler? Hulk Hogan, maybe Steve Austin and The Rock. And Savage is going to yeah. come up in that conversation. Kind of like, he doesn't often yeah. get considered as his place in the business being there. But he could have replaced Hogan. Maybe not completely. <sighs> But more than anyone else ever could have. I think he's the best option they had. So how does that work the other question is how would that have worked? Like, yeah. Is that's Hogan actually gonna steal is Hogan actually gonna steal Elizabeth? Randy never would have gone for that. Here's the thing. There's turning heel, and then there's being an unrepentant piece of shit, which is what Hulk Hogan would have had to turn into here. Is Hogan going to, like, body slam Elizabeth? Or is he just going to—maybe he's just going to turn on Savage and be like, I was never your friend. I just wanted to get close to you to learn your secrets and get the title back. Truth is, you could have never turned Hulk Hogan heel at this point. The fans weren't ready for it. It was never going to happen. Probably not. If you had tried, it would have turned Savage by accident because yeah. Hogan's hope. Hogan. It's, it's a couple, a couple years after this, they're ready for. You know, I, re, I think he should have turned heel against the Warrior. I, yes. I think it, they made a mistake not turning him heel for that match. I think that WrestleMania could have drawn better if Hogan had been the heel there instead of doing the babyface match. I do think though that you could have not gone all the way with Savage turning heel. Like you could have gone face versus face, and it's just like a blood rivalry thing. You know what I mean? Like, if you tone it down a little bit, I think it still works. And then they can shake hands afterwards. I just don't. I don't. I don't think that draws. I just no. it wouldn't baby face. Baby face match is poison at this point. Here's the thing. It wouldn't have drawn at WrestleMania. But like, yeah, with the benefit of retrospect, that's the right thing to do, because at least he can get out of the WrestleMania with the belt, maybe. Yeah. And then we have a future. Cause we know what's coming. Like two years from now, this company's it's in not this good. Shirt. <laughs> and it's all the Warriors' fault. It is, yeah. First elimination here. Rooster gets pinned after Hogan slams him and Savage hits the flying elbow. Hillbilly Jim is eliminated after Akeem hits him with the body splash. Bossman pins Coco with the sidewalk slam. I do appreciate that they're you know, cleaning the trash out quick here. This is smart. Uh, crowd really came to life for Hogan and Bossman facing off. It's incredible how over Bossman. Bossman just debuted back in the summer. He is a 100% a credible challenger to Hogan here. It is they're fascinating. They're doing monster business on the house shows against each other. You forget how big boss man is like he's a he's giant just Hogan twice as wide and he can move man he looks like an NFL offensive tackle today he's way bigger than any offensive lineman in the NFL back then and he's like going up against Hogan who's like not as big as he once was so like he yeah. looks even bigger and his whole cop gimmick is like really effective heel shit because no one likes cops yeah. and the outfit makes him look even bigger because it's loose and baggy. There's just something beautiful about this gimmick. Like, they could have gone even further with it. I mean, they shot the really hot angle on TV where Boss Man handcuffed Hogan to a guardrail and beat the hell out of him with a nightstick. That was really edgier than. That's more heat than they would normally get on the baby faces on TV. That's the other good thing that Boss Man really brings to WWE is the fucking handcuff spot. Can you imagine where we'd yeah. be as a, as a wrestling society without the handcuffs? <laughs> Nowhere. But we have heat a few segment. more brain cells. Yeah, every major heat segment has to feature handcuffs. Oh man. Um Hogan slams Bossman, but Boss Man comes back with a huge spine buster. Hogan takes the heat for the next couple minutes. DiBiase covers him. Hogan kicks out and hulks up. Hogan tags in Hercules like a dumbass, and DiBiase rolls him up for the pin. Yep. (laughs) It's Hogan and Savage against the Boss Man, Akeem, DiBiase, and Haku. Hercules distracts DiBiase, and Savage rolls him up for the pin. Hogan tags in, gets beaten up. Hogan's really sucking tonight. It's nice that they did that, because, like, he's... He's trying to make it clear that this is, like, Savage's deal, because Savage is going to be the hero later on. So it, it makes sense. It's still weird to see him take the heat for, like, 20 minutes straight. Yeah. Um, boss Man hits the sidewalk slam, but he doesn't cover. He goes up to the top rope and goes for a big splash, but he misses. Savage tags in. Slick grabs Elizabeth and drags her up the aisle. Hogan beats him up. Bossman and Akeem run out to cut Hogan off. They handcuff Hogan to the bottom rope, and Bossman is counted out. So we've got Hogan and Savage against Hakeem and Haku. Bossman beats on Hogan on the floor with his nightstick while Haku works over Savage in the ring. Boss Man then jumps into the ring and hits Savage with his nightstick, and Hakim is disqualified. Hakim didn't do shit. He's like the only person here who shouldn't have been disqualified. Yeah. So it's Hogan and Savage against Haku, but Hogan is handcuffed on the floor, and Savage is knocked out. Our heroes are in trouble here. This is great. And within Haku, I think they picked the perfect person for this part yeah. of the match. Because he's completely fresh, and he's athletic, and he starts whooping Savage's ass. But his downfall is he accidentally hits Slick with a thrust kick. That allows Elizabeth to swipe the handcuff keys from Slick's pocket and unlock Hogan. Haku hits a splash from the top rope, but Savage kicks out. Haku kicks Savage and knocks him back into Hogan. Which allows Hogan to tag himself in. Hogan comes in with the big boot, the scoop slam, and the leg drop for the one, two, three, and Hogan and Savage survive. Wow, wow. hot closing, hot closing sequence there. Yeah, this entire show is just leading to the final two minutes of this match, yes. which kick complete ass. Like there's no, like we can quibble all we want about how the show looks like garbage and it was boring and all of that. Last two minutes of this show worth every penny if you bought it like this is hot now let's get to the important part the savage hogan part so during the heat portion while hogan is handcuffed to the ropes they make it very clear and this is i think the best part of what they do with the storyline they show us very clearly what savage sees and he goes to tag hogan repeatedly no hogan he does not see that hogan is handcuffed to the ropes All he sees is that he's not there. Genius. I love that. And then Savage, who's so beaten up, he didn't even tag in Hogan. He's like half unconscious. Hogan wins the match, raises him up, and then Savage is like slowly recovering. And then he turns around to see Hogan holding Elizabeth up in the air celebrating. Yeah. Not only is he celebrating, even though Savage was just getting his own ass kicked, even though Savage was like, where the fuck were you, Hogan, when I needed you? Now he's holding up Elizabeth as if yeah. that's his. Now you got a handful of my girl's ass. And you see it all over his face. Elizabeth raises both of their hands, but you see the look on Savage's yeah. face as he's staring at Hogan like, what the fuck were so you doing, man? Hell? Yeah. Very good. The- WWE like has a never little, told subtle a story. Subtle cinema, as is the popular term now. You could barely even say that WWE had ever even told a real story before this. This is not what they do. Um, God, there's not a lot. Uh, no. Hogan and, Orndor- and Orndorf was pretty good. Zabisco and San Martino was good. Yes, but you couldn't call any of that subtle. Like, it, it was no, all very clear. Not. Like yeah. Liscio just hit Bruno with a fucking wooden chair. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um. Yeah. But yeah. So this one, they're leaving it all up to us to suss this. And the announcers aren't calling it. They're not bringing Le to light like, oh, no. Savage looks mad at Hogan. They say nothing. Yeah, I'm impressed by how much they underplay because Jesse before this seemed to be playing up dissension at every opportunity, which. I don't think he actually knew where I think he had just kind of figured out where this was going to go. I don't think they had told him to start doing it here. Yeah, much more subtle. Like the fact that Jesse's not all over this means that he either was told like not to bring it up or he realizes his role in the story right now is to let it be subtle. But like just that look of Savage at Hogan as he has his hand raised like you motherfucker. What are you trying to do to me right now? Yeah. The, and this is the turn to act two. You know, act one, everything was good. Here we've introduced the drama. Yeah, you got the one suspicious glance at the last show, but Savage uh, was like, you know what? No, it's, okay. it's, fine. it's fine. We're good. Yeah. But now it's like twice. You did this to me twice yeah, again. What's happening here? Yeah. This is good stuff. I mean, for as much as most of this show was really boring, this last five minutes was absolute dynamite, and this is what people kept coming back for. Here's the genius of this. So little in wrestling are we allowed to get, like, things to, you can speculate about like this. Like, these, these are the kind of things you would go to school the next day and be talking with your friends like, dude, did you see what fucking Hogan did? Yeah. He, did you see how mad Savage looked? Do you think they're going to fight? Dude, do you think they're going to fight? That would be fucking crazy. I'm trying to think of the other things that like Batista and triple H was like this. Yes. A lot of the same subtlety and slow burn. The bloodline has been, I mean, the bloodline has happened across years. They've just lived on those little, those little looks they give each other until Roman went like one full year with basically cutting no promos, just looking at people. And that was it. And getting pops off of it. (laughs) Kind of remarkable. We're now at a point. Can you remember a time ever in WWF history where the top star could lose a pinfall in a tag match in the main event of a pay-per-view and it'd be a hugely satisfying end? Felt like the end of the world that he finally got beat. Well, yeah, he hadn't been pinned in over three years, three and a a half years since the last time he had been pinned. That's what I'm saying, though. They built this so well. Yeah that, like, that's not even the real blow-off. That'll come when Cody beats him at WrestleMania. But they were able to half-blow off this three-year storyline in a tag match at Money in the Bank. And, you know, they made it feel credible that maybe, maybe, maybe Jay can beat Roman at SummerSlam. Which, of course, he won't. And that's of okay. Okay. And may, maybe, you know, and there's ways this could go Maybe Solo stops him, maybe Jimmy gets gel Maybe Roman manages to fuck with Jimmy's mind enough That Jimmy turns on Jay Maybe Sammy turns on Jay Yeah Like, there's a million ways you could go Because now you've made all of these people incredibly important, varied, and interesting characters In a way that they you never do we, we've yelled for years about please let wrestlers interact with other wrestlers, and here they've done it, and wea've together this beautiful story. <laughs> the Mega yeah. Powers were the original version of that. You never saw two babyfaces actually come together and intertwine like this that were like individual lone wolves. It, it just didn't happen. So when it happens here, yeah. it, the, it's the launching point for maybe the most successful storyline they ever told. And this worked so well, because I think they just sat down back around WrestleMania 4 and kind of, you know, plotted out their couple big plot points. You know, it's SummerSlam, there's a touch, it's Survivor Series, there's a look at the Rumble. you know, Hogan's going to screw up and get Savage eliminated, and it'll all blow open at the main event. It's just such a good idea. And like, but the but the way they put it together is so much more special. Like you could, this could easily have been nothing, right? This could have been chic Tugboat. Like this could have been garbage. But these performers kill it. And it's playing on such a real situation and the real feelings between these two men. And that's why it's so special. All right. So that's a wrap on Survivor Series 1988. Not a show I was particularly fond of. There was just like a, an hour long period in the middle of the show where I realized I'd just been staring at some like <laughs> like fat white dude's back for an hour straight, and I was like, "Man, this sucks." Oh man, <laughs> uh, I'm just this is just not wrestling for me. I, I this is neither of our cool. thing. That's the thing. I like gritty 80s Southern wrestling where it's really, you know, it's heated and it's real and it's bloody and it's intense. This is children's wrestling with 80s presentation. I feel like it's kind of the worst of all worlds. My perfect wrestling product is like the Japanese presentation of like it's like half a sport and like you can take it seriously and it's like a competitive contest. But also with like the modern presentation with like pomp and circumstance and screens yeah. and like like the presenting it as like this big huge event. And this is neither of those things. This is as far from my shit as you can possibly get. We're in the right era for your shit, but it's still not right. <laughs> no. That's just I just don't like I don't like this Yankee northern show business wrestling. Nah. How funny is it that we would come together as a podcast as basically a bunch of WWF-hating weirdos, but from two totally different directions? Next time, we'll cover the 1989 Royal Rumble. Uh, First ever Royal Rumble on pay-per-view. Not much on this card. Uh, A 30-man Royal Rumble match featuring Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage is the only real attraction here. You're not excited about the wonderful Montreal pairing of Dino Bravo and the fabulous Rougeaus? Oh my God! Exci- That'd be a big main. That'd be a big main event in Montreal. You're not excited for King versus King for the title of King? What about the pose down between Rick Rude and the Ultimate Warrior? I actually am kind of excited for that. I love a good pose down. Let me be clear. There, there are certain segments in wrestling history that I'm confident that either you or I are the biggest fan in the entire world of. Uh, <laughs> the pose down between Scott Steiner and Triple H, I'm confident Steve is the only person on Earth who loves that as much as he does, aside from maybe really? Triple just H because himself. it made Triple H look so... made Triple H look so fat and pathetic. That was very... That that had to have been suggested to him as a rib, like, hey, buddy, go out there and flex your shit. Yeah, show up big, show the... Off. You look way better than Steiner. Somebody saw him Dude, at the buffet on the way to the arena and was just yeah. like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing beats Hogan out tanning Triple H for that backlash match. Except for him stepping into a spotlight to be like to steal that too. Fucking Hogan, man. <sighs> that's why that's why he's the goat. Have you noticed that like <laughs> you know- most of our seasons are about Hulk Hogan? <laughs> Yeah, because most of wrestling history is about Hulk Hogan. When you really think about it, yeah, as much as we hate the man, most of what we talk about revolves around him. He built this empire. He built this sport. And the fact <laughs> Doesn't that... Doesn't mean now, he's a nice guy. Doesn't mean he's a good dude, but he did it. It's just so funny that pe- pe- like people who are fans now probably more remember him as the guy who fucked Bubba the Love Sponge's wife and was complaining about the sushi yeah. being too bad or something like that. <laughs> like, he he is now just the guy who said the N-word. And it's so funny to think that the whole industry is built on him. All right. We'll have all that and more next time on the LawCast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.